the feeling that we had was that, not militancy, but that, that we were revolutionaries. Coming up, Seattle's Black Panther Party, part two of our talk with Elmer Dixon, co-founder of the Seattle chapter. That we were part of a revolutionary struggle. We were part of a revolutionary army. It's been 50 years since the Black Panther Party was founded and since Elmer Dixon, his older brother Aaron, and others were drawn to the party and inspired to create a Seattle chapter. And change the dynamics in the black community to end the effects of racism of 200 years of oppression. We look back on their efforts to mobilize Seattle's black community, their defiant show of force on the steps of the state capitol, and what led to the party's demise here and nationally. I'm Enrique Serna, and this is Conversations. There's a photo of, and you're in this photo, on the Capitol steps in Olympia, and you are, you guys are armed, you have rifles. Tell me about that, and what was that all about? Well, we had gotten wind that the legislature was going to pass uh, a law. This was 1969, by the way. 1969. I remember exactly when it was. Yeah, yeah. And they were going to pass a law out, outlawing, making it illegal to carry a loaded weapon in public. And that was a direct response to us carrying weapons in public. It was a direct response to our police alert patrols. The same thing happened in Sacramento when the Mulford Act was being passed and little Bobby Hutton was still alive at that point. This is before little Bobby was shot. And they went to Sacramento in the same fashion to protest the passing of this law and demonstrate their constitutional right to bear arms. And so there was a similar effort here in the state of Washington to pass a similar law. And we got wind that they were going to be debating this on the floor. And we were organizing to come down and they got wind that we were coming down to Olympia, the legislative body. And they turned Olympia into a war zone. They had a, a 50 caliber machine gun on the state capitol up on the, one of the top of the buildings and they had state troopers everywhere. And Did they have National Guard come out National, as well? National Guard, they wow. had, I mean, they were like it was an armed camp. And unbeknownst to them, you know, they had their informant telling them that we were coming down, unbeknownst to them, my younger brother, Michael, was a page <laughs> uh, in Olympia. And he called us up and said, you know, they're, they're, they're waiting for you. It looks like a, a military encampment down here. Don't come. So we didn't come. So they waited and we didn't show up. So they pulled all their stuff off and backed all, you know, closed thing up and they thought things were as normal. The next morning, we didn't tell anybody. Aaron just said, okay, we're going. So we gathered a group of Panthers together and we went down in two or three car loads and surprised them. They were shocked. And, and in fact, uh, the governor at the time. Dan know, Evans. It was Dan Evans. Oh, he was, he was irate about the security or lack thereof because there we were on the state capitol and Aaron went inside the chamber with his speech and we closed the door so no one could get out and he went in there and he, he gave his speech about why it was unconstitutional for them to pass this law while we were occupying the, the stairs. It was a demonstration of our rights to own and bear arms. Whatever happened to the bill? It passed. Did? Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's talk about how, you, how, they, how the Panthers evolved here. There was, okay, the image, 
the revolutionary image. But you guys really, in a way, took a different approach in the sense that you really focused on giving and helping the community. It's like you were saying, the survival yeah. type of things well, yeah. with, with the food banks and breakfast programs. And um, something that I think nobody really expected. Yeah, there, there was always an internal conflict from the very beginning, Enrique, an internal conflict within the Black Panther Party. And you mentioned militancy. There was a, a, a faction in the party largely um, led by, encouraged by uh, uh, Eldridge Cleaver to, to be more militant in our approach and to, to attack, which was against the nature of the original intent of the Black Panther Party. And there was this struggle for that to happen, which is why there were members of the party who were going out and doing, you know, who had, who had kind of prescribed to that and were going out and doing some strikes and doing some attacks here and in other parts of the country. And we knew very early on and realized very early on that we could not win a military fight against the U.S. government. We, we knew that would be suicide. And so the other faction in the party believed the other, and I don't want to call it faction, but the other prevailing belief in the party was that we needed to organize the community and address their needs pending revolution so that it would be a long protracted struggle of organizing within the community, helping them take control of the institutions within their community so that they could organize and become this strong political force while at the same time building coalitions with other like-minded groups in the white community, in the brown community, in the red community, in the yellow community, etc. And so the survival programs, what we called them survival programs pending revolution, it was where we had done an analysis and in fact one of the things that we had learned very early as we looked at revolutionary theory by Frantz Fanon and dialectical materialism and how we needed to organize that one of the you things guys that were we, pretty deep we, we were <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the things that that Huey emphasized and taught us was that power uh, is the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner while on the other hand Eldridge Cleaver was saying power grows out of the barrel of a gun I mean, so those were the, the, the two ideas, but Huey had the broader influence. So power is the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner. So define the phenomena within your community. It began with the police alert patrol. Police needed to be stopped from killing innocent, unarmed black men. Sound familiar? Um, and defining the phenomena, school kids are being asked to learn an education that is not relevant to them and they're hungry and they can't even learn that. In the black community in King County, in the central area, we had the second highest infant mortality rate in the state in that small community. So these were phenomena that we were defining. 
And how do you make them act in a desired manner? Well, you go out and you do something. We didn't talk about it, which is why we organized the Children's Free Breakfast Program. We ended up feeding two to 3,000 kids a week in five different sites across the city. We started the first free medical clinic in 1969, which is, by the way, still running today, the Carolyn Downs Family Medical Center. We organized free food programs, free bag giveaways. We organized sickle cell anemia testing and brought sickle cell anemia to light. And we even organized a group of 30 students who went up in two big vans that went up to Monroe with us every Monday night to tutor the inmates in there and to help them get their GEDs. Because we didn't think that the prison system was rehabilitating prisoners. We were going to go in and get them qualified to have a job when they came out. These were programs that we started to organize within our community. And while we were doing that, we were building these coalitions across all these different communities. I kept saying guys, and I shouldn't be saying that because the fact is that women were involved in the Black Panther Party locally. And not only that, it was not just African-Americans that were involved. You had a, a number of Asian members and others that, had, uh, yeah. that were part of the party effort. And, and actually, I have to tell you, I got a call from a fellow named Mike Tagawa. Mike Tagawa was one of our original Panthers yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. And yeah. he called me and said, that, hey, are you going to do anything about the Black Panthers? And since <laughs> Mike is always on the job. <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, I, and I said, you know, you're right, I will. And I, then I decided to call you and yeah. we're having this conversation. So you were diverse. Yeah, we had uh, several members that were Chinese, Japanese, uh, Guy Karosi, yeah. Mike Tagawa, our lead attorney. We had a group of attorneys, but Mike Rosen, who actually was one of the, uh, the first organizers of the ACLU here in Seattle, was one of our lead attorneys, a young white Jewish guy. And then John Coughlin, who was, uh, we, we called him the White Panther. Um, and then we had Gary Gayton, we had, we had several other attorneys. But we also built these broad coalitions with groups like the Red Guard, AIM, the Air American Indian Movement, the uh, Brown Berets in Southern California, the Latinos, the Young Lords, the Puerto Ricans in, uh, in New York, in New York yeah. the Patriot Party, which were from Appalachia, white, young, white, revolutionaries who were oppressed and brutalized in the Appalachian Territory. And, th and they were our part of our coalition. We had organizations in Denmark, Sweden, Germany, France, support groups in Japan. There was a Black Panther Party in Australia. Oh um, so we had, and, and then we opened up the international branch of the Black Panther Party in Algeria, which ended up being run by uh, Eldridge Cleaver because he was in exile. Right. Mayor, then mayor, was Solomon. How was that relationship? He actually helped you guys at one point, didn't he? <laughs> you know, I have a great relationship with West today. Yeah. Um, in fact, we have stood on the same dais, uh, the same podium, and talked about that incident that you're talking about. I, I won't say that we had a relationship then. What was the incident? But the incident was uh, the ATF was coming to town to raid the Panther office. 
And, you know, those of you that, that will be listening to this show, and you may have one image of the ATF today, which was very different than the ATF back, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Division of the federal government. They were coming to Seattle to raid our office. They had raid offices around the country. They had murdered Fred Hampton in Chicago. They had murdered Panthers in other parts of the country and attacked the L.A. office and were kicked out of it. And were, were, the L.A. office fought back and, and fought them off to a standstill in L.A., which is a really inspiring story. But here in Seattle, uh, so they were coming to town to raid Seattle. There were three offices, three, three cities that J. Edgar Hoover had targeted in his focus to try to destroy the party to eliminate. And the three cities were L.A., Seattle, and Chicago. And so we were next on the list. So two things happened that night. There was a reporter, local reporter by the name of Don McGaffin. Oh, yes, from King TV. Worked Who, with Don. And, and Don was doing the, the police beat, the police blotter down in the police station. And we had been out selling Panther papers, and we had come back into our office, and we got this call from Don McGaffin. He said, you know, they're going to raid you tonight. And he said, I'm down in the station. I've been hearing them talk, and, and they're, they're getting strapped up to come and, and, and come and raid you. And, uh, in fact, he heard some of the cops when he asked them, so what are you doing? What, it sounds it looks like you're getting ready for something big. And they said, we're going to go get those Dixon brothers tonight. And so he told us that. And so we, we were on red alert, and we were prepared for them. Now, on the other side of the coin, the ATF needed tactical support from the Seattle Police Department. And in order to do that, they had to get permission from the mayor. And so as the story goes, as Wes tells the story, the ATF guy asks, so tells them that they need tactical support. And Wes said, well, what do you want to raid them for? And the ATF guy says, well, they've got our informants tell us they have illegal weapons. And Wes retorted back, my informants, apparently Wes had some informants, <laughs> tells us that all of their weapons are legal, which they were. We had no illegal weapons in our headquarters. And he said, so they've got legal weapons, so you can't use the Seattle police. And they were ticked off really big time. So while we were up there waiting, you know, we had, uh, the, we, we had a, a process when if an attack was imminent, one, we, of course, we had thousands of rounds of ammunition. We had, you know, we had bulletproof vests. We had gas masks. We had sandbags on our walls. We had plyboard and steel sandwiches on the window with gun flaps. You know, we were in, inside, we were fully ready. And outside, we had community people who were going to be there to observe because we got on phone trees and called 10 people and everybody else called 10 people. Before you know, we had 300 people out there. And so... So they would have to clear them away before if they did anything. So we were completely ready. We waited and waited. And, you know, we, we waited, of course, we, because we, they often will attack in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning is when they murdered Fred Hampton. And so, but they never came. We were up all night. They never came. And later we found out it was because the mayor had rebuffed the ATF, and they left town with tail between their legs. I'll, I'll tell you one other piece to that. West said, in fact, West didn't tell me this. One of his uh, deputies, John Metsoulis, who I worked with at the park department right over here under Walt Hundley off of Denny Street. We called it the bunker. And then John Metsoulis used to work on, he was on West's cabinet at the time. And he said, following that, their group, West and his deputies, went to Washington, D.C. for the presidential dinner, the mayor's dinner, for pre uh, the, at the president's mayor's dinner. And they were pulled off to the side, 
and pulled into a room by John Ehrlichman. And you'll remember that this name from the, water, from the Nixon, or you'll remember yeah, that name yeah. from the Watergate right, hearings. Right. And Ehrlichman railed at him and said, the president is pissed off <laughs> that you turned away, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Ehrlichman and, had Seattle roots, too. He yeah, had a Seattle yeah. attorney here. And too. he said, and so the president has uninvited you to the presidential, <laughs> to the mayor's dinner. And, and they said, great, we don't want to go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an interesting story. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about, okay, how did things wind down and change? Well, um, you know, the, the, the years of infiltration uh, into the party, uh, the agitation from agents to try to turn party members against one another, uh, uh, the infamous split, as they called it, really wasn't a split, but Eldridge and Huey had a showdown on national TV, which caught Huey by surprise, and that was all orchestrated by the FBI. They sent letters to Eldridge saying that Huey was planning to assassinate him. They sent letters to Huey saying that Eldridge was going to assassinate them. So all of these things took its toll over the years. And we had, the, the party had, had pulled, uh, Central Headquarters had pulled all of these chapters into uh, Oakland, uh, left all of the chapters around the country. I was in prison at the time, so I wasn't pulled into Oakland. How did you end up in prison? Uh, it was over a leather jacket that I acquired in Oregon when I was there on a speaking tour at the University of Eugene. I later found out years ago, Enrique, that it was orchestrated by one of my bodyguards who was an agent. And so I spent 14 months in prison in Oregon over that for armed robbery for stealing a leather coat from a student. So you campus. had an informant that had gotten into the Seattle organization. Oh, we probably had more. We know we had more than one. There were informants in every chapter across the country. And so that's why I was just saying that the years of informants, you know, doing various things uh, in, internally in the organization took its toll. It caused some mistrust. It caused a lot of things that, that occurred that eventually wore down the party. But at the, the other side of that was where all of these people had gone into the Bay Area in 1972 while I was still in prison. And they were forming what Huey called the base of operation. It was a, it was a chapter that was a, a tactic that was borrowed from Mao Zedong when he did the same thing and brought, you know, built a base of operation in China during the Chinese Revolution. And so all these, chap all these party members were there to elect Bobby Seale mayor and to elect Elaine Brown city council and Oakland was going to be the base of operation of the Black Panther Party. And um, uh, Bobby forced a runoff with the other candidate running for mayor. I mean, we were like inches away from winning that election. That was in 73. And shortly after that, after Bobby lost, the, uh, although he forced a runoff and a black mayor was eventually elected, just came that close to winning the city council seat. She ran again two years later. But after those, those things happened and they didn't get elected, and some things happened internally. People began to leave the party in large numbers. We were one of the last surviving chapters. You, you won't hear about that incident until you read my book, which is in process now. 
but we... And the book, is the book going to be about your years? It'll be about my life growing up and leading into the Black Panther Party and beyond. I've done presentations in Europe called From Revolutionary to Interculturalist. And so it, it didn't stop with you know, my work. And, and you know, I think most many party members are still doing work. My work evolved into being a diversity consultant. I've, I've worked in major corporations and had the presidents of Fortune 100 companies in my classroom, including PepsiCo and PepsiCo International, teaching them the, the essence of creating inclusive environments in their workplace. And so it wore down members of the party it, and people, the time was to, to go in different directions. And so in Seattle, what we did was, we were in the process of reorganizing the, the free medical clinic. So when we broke away from the party, we continued to operate all of our programs as if we were still Panthers. And in fact, that year, that same year, in fact, in fact I think it was the year before in 75, we won, the Black Panther Party won the Medium Newspaper Unsung Hero Award. Today, there is the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. What do you think of it? It's a movement that needs to happen. See, I think that Black Lives Matter people know, you know, you hear this thing about all lives matter. Well, of course all lives matter. But the guns aren't being pointed at all lives. They're being pointed at black and Latino kids, male and females. And so I think that they make a valid point to at least say that black lives matter too. Now, in terms of how they're organized, you know, um, they, they obviously could, could learn some lessons about community organizing, but I'm not going to sit here and criticize them. You know, I encourage them to continue to, to strive to organize and to, to do what it is they believe they need to do because there are new tactics that need to be employed today. And I salute anybody that is standing up and pushing back. Elmer Dixon, co-founder of the Seattle Black Panther Party, along with his brother Aaron Dixon. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it very much. And we'll talk more next time. All right. Pleasure. Pleasure.